1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us over the Internet. Thank you for your many emails and holiday wishes and for making us part of your news week. Now, as you can probably hear, I'm nursing a good old-fashioned winter cold, so my voice is a little sketchy today. But with a little luck and a lot of hot tea, hopefully we'll have a smooth program ahead. In just a moment, attorney and former special advisor for Green Jobs, Enterprise and Innovation to President Obama, Mr. Van Jones will be joining us to shed light on what has happened to green jobs in America and also to talk about the president's recent attempt to move forward on gun control. What is within legal authority, and how will Congress respond? We'll find out during this next hour from an advocate who has stood for the underdog whether that meant a minority, the impoverished, or Mother Earth herself, Mr. Van Jones. But before Mr. Jones joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Anthony Capel Jones was born in Jackson. Tennessee. He earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Tennessee and law degree from Yale. His first professional employment was as an intern for the Jackson Sun, Shreveport Times, and Associated Press. After earning his degree, Jones moved to San Francisco where he put his talent to use for social justice. In 1995, he founded Bay Area Police Watch, the nation's first hotline for reporting police misconduct and first database, which allowed that misconduct to be tracked, aggregated, and acted on. From here, Jones went on to found the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, the color of change, green for all, and rebuild the dream. He has been a seeker of solutions to our nation's most intractable problems, from civil rights to the environment, and along the way, somehow, found time to author two best-selling books. But you may best know Jones as the force behind the Green Jobs Act signed by President Bush in 2007, and his role as Special Advisor for Green Jobs Enterprise and Innovation to President Obama. Today, Mr. Jones continues as a contributor to CCNN, a fellow at the Center for American Progress and Princeton University, and oversees the Dream Corps, a nonprofit organization committed to practical solutions which can remedy social and environmental challenges. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, a man Rolling Stone magazine called one of the 12 leaders who get things done, Mr. Van Jones. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Jones.
3: Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much.
2: Now, a little bird told me that you are covering the president's executive action to tighten up background checks relative to gun ownership. Is that right?
3: Well, yeah, it it is uh, right. And um, I have to say, I was uh, very, very proud uh, of the president's uh, action yesterday, but also his words. Um, I think he really spoke for uh, millions of Americans. Sometimes the president is speaking to millions of Americans. I think yesterday he was speaking for millions when he actually shed a tear uh, for those first graders who uh, were gunned down. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm very, very proud that he is at least trying to do what he can do inside of the constraints of the Constitution to at least move the needle uh, in the right direction in terms of gun safety.
2: Well, you know, you're a lawyer, and, you know, this is your wheelhouse, uh, the Constitution, what the Oval Office can and cannot do. Um, how far can the president take this without Congress's support?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the thing is, we have three branches of government, and um, it's the, the job of Congress to to pass legislation, and it's the job of the executive branch, the president, to enforce that legislation. The problem is, um, it, uh, you know, when legislation is passed, often it's just a mishmash of all kinds of words that aren't defined all kinds of ideas that aren't clear. Um, they talk about that sausage-making product, pro, uh, process of lawmaking. Uh, they say, you know, um, if you, if you, if you want to see um, how sausage is made, you're gonna, your stomach's going to turn a little bit. Same with lawmaking. So sometimes the, the product is a little bit all over the place, and then it's up to the executive branch to interpret that and to enforce it. Now, if that executive branch overreaches, it's up to the judicial branch to, to say, hey, hold on a second, you guys, you have got this wrong, you abused your discretion, you went too far. Um, but this this back-and-forth process between the three, three branches of the government has been going on uh, since George Washington. George Washington actually introduced the first executive order. And so with regard to the particular uh, legislation, some of the language um, as, to, as far as who is included who's not is just simply not clear. It says, you know, uh, if, you, if you make your livelihood... Um, And you're in the business of uh, gun dealing, you have to abide by certain um, uh, rules and regulations. Well, there's no definition in the statute. It doesn't say, well, if you make this much money or that much money, or it's this percentage or that percentage. um, They don't say what it means. And so up until now, uh, the interpretation of the law, which is up to the executive branch to do, um, has been uh, has been more narrow, and it's allowed all kinds of shenanigans to break out across the country, where people can go to gun shows and buy. Um, guns. Uh, there's been some concern about what's going on online. There have been these phony trusts that have been established. And all of this, the president hoped that Congress would clean up. But he always maintained the whole time. He had the authority um, to to uh, do it on the executive side just to, to clarify their interpretation. And that's what he did.
2: So the this is more of- about implementation of current law.
3: Exactly. It, uh, the, the president... Uh, cannot make new law. He can't just come up with some whole new thing on his own. But the president has a responsibility to interpret existing law, to clarify it. And much more importantly, the conservatives uh, have long said, we have enough laws on the books. They just need to be better enforced. And one of the things the president did that I think was overlooked was he did say, I am going to double down on enforcing existing law. In other words, taking a page exactly and directly from his conservative opponents, I would have hoped that they might have applauded him for doing that. He's asking for more support to enforce the existing laws, which is you know, something they say a lot. I don't think he got enough credit for that.
2: Right. I, you know, and, and when I really studied what he's recommending in terms of tightening in the background checks and, um, and requesting that, um, uh, even, uh, um, Medical professionals uh, be wary of uh, individuals who might have psychiatric issues that. Uh, have indicated that they're uh, applying for guns or have guns. Now, when I look at a lot of these measures, it's hard for me. And and by the way, I'm an independent, right? I don't have a bone to pick with either side, or maybe I've got a bone to pick with both sides. I'm, I never can <laughs> tell. But uh, but you know, I it, it just seemed like these the things that he was suggesting seemed so obvious, and I don't know, almost benign. Am am, am I out of whack here?
3: well i it's funny you should say that because I was actually um you know I work at, at c n n and I was on the air last night having done the same thing that you did. You heard this huge outcry before the president spoke, yeah, and it was like it was going to be the gun grabbing apocalypse, and he was going to essentially become this tyrant that was going to break the law, defy the Constitution and you know create all these new burdens on the second amendment. And so I was thinking to myself, well I you know I I believe in the constitution. There's only so far I can support the president. If he goes too far, I'm going to have to call him out. Me then too. What, right. Then you see what he actually came out with. And
2: then he got on TV and he cried about first graders being shot. And I thought, yeah. but what this wasn't what we were thinking was this isn't yeah. what we were prepared for.
3: Yeah, not at all. And then the actual proposals, I said, uh It seems to me the Republicans should learn how to take yes for an answer, because literally everything that the president did was completely within the bounds of what they had already said they wanted him to do. They said they didn't want him to make any new laws. If he wanted to make new laws, he he should come to Congress. Well, uh, guess what? A big part of what he announced is he's going to go to Congress. He's got the State of the Union next week. They said they wanted him to focus more on health care and Uh, mental health. And that's exactly uh, what he's going to be talking about next week. So sometimes you got to take yes for an answer.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right. Now we have to take our first break, but stay where you are. We'll be right back with more from Van Jones. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your brute cuvee that beat all the other competitors around the world?
4: We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through.
2: This was a worldwide competition.
4: It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best you best sparkling wine award we fared really well overall we had three wines win best of class which was great
5: visit the caraccioli tasting room on Dolores street in carmel by the sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone 831-622-7722
6: Not available in California. Here's a great idea for a business. Health food in vending machines. Who doesn't want healthier choices? Imagine the money you could make. Well, guess what? The guys at Fresh Healthy Vending have already thought of it. Which explains why they're the number one healthy vending franchise. With thousands of franchisee-owned vending machines offering people what they want most. Healthier snacks. Could you be our next new franchisee? Because we've identified high traffic locations and have machines ready to be installed in your community, this is your chance for full or part-time income. Most of our franchisees work fewer than 15 hours a week, and many are so impressed with the money they're making that they've added even more machines to their business. And we do all the work for you. We procure high foot traffic locations, train you, install your machines, and deliver thousands of best-selling natural, organic, and healthy snacks and drinks nationwide. So go to readyforfresh.com right now. Type in promo code 7676 and receive an immediate 50% savings on franchise fees. That's right. We'll pay half of new franchisees fees. That's promo code 7676. Again, readyforfresh.com 7676.
5: Are things getting a little messy around the office at coast paper and supply? We'll meet all your janitorial needs. Mops, dusters, disinfectants. We got them. Can't get rid of that smell in the break room. Try our deodorizer carpet stains. We have a cure for that too. While you're at it, pick up the essentials. Garbage cans and liners, sponges and brooms. Is your company going green? Coast Paper and Supply is offering earth-friendly cleaning and food service alternatives. Our ever-evolving stock includes compostable bowls, plates, cups, and cutlery. Not to mention eco-friendly cleaners and biodegradable trash can liners, all at the lowest possible price. So come visit Coast Paper and Supply at 151 Josephine Street, or look us up at com. You can also call us at 831-423-3350 That's 831-423-3350 <laughs>
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. My guest today is CNN contributor and environment and social justice advocate, Mr. Van Jones. Now, Mr. Jones, the most recent statistics indicate that black victims represent 55 percent of all shooting homicides, even though they represent about 13 percent of the U.S. population. And and though incidences such as Newton and San Bernardino and Virginia Tech were certainly not racially motivated, it's difficult to ignore the fact that the vast majority of shooting deaths involve black Americans. What should we make of that?
3: Well, and we have an epidemic of, um, of, of gun violence in um, the African-American community, um, and there's a, a level of, of economic despair. There's a level of, uh, I think, spiritual despair Emotional trauma, and sometimes you can get a cycle going, and you you see that sometimes happening in history and in in other countries, where you have so much post-traumatic stress disorder from so much gunfire um, that people are on a hair-trigger alert, and the violence just leads to more violence. Um, You know, often people will say, "Well, why do um, the African American uh, activists focus so much on police violence?" when you know, the police are killing a, a tiny fraction of a minority of the number of African-Americans who are killed by other African-Americans. And um, I say that's just a media illusion. of the, uh, When there are marches and vigils and rallies to stop the, the, the gang violence and street violence, the media doesn't cover it. <laughs> there are many, many more marches and vigils and rallies and discussions in our community about ending this epidemic of violence. Um than there are about the police, but uh, the the police stuff is important too. If you are a parent um, and you send a, a black child out into a, a typical black community, you're equally concerned about the street violence and the police violence that may be uh, unjustly directed against your child. and so well, you bring up a-, a good
2: point. the media doesn't cover it. I'm aware of that in our own community here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Is the media racist?
3: Well, I don't know if if the media. I, I think it racist. is. By the way, well,
2: I, I'm an independent. Again, I think it is.
3: Well, I, I think that uh, there are certain stories that do uh, just baffle you. For instance, right now uh, there is a so-called militia group that has taken over federal land, armed 150 armed men, um, and uh, there's there's nothing is happening to them. And yet I cannot imagine if an American Muslim group took over federal land or an American black group or American lesbian group got arms and took over a federal building, that this wouldn't be uh, considered a a huge act of treason, if not terrorism. And so there does seem to be a double standard. Um, Often I think that when you show an African-American image, it's guilty until proven innocent. Um, no matter what the, the circumstances are. And the media plays a role in that, and I think we have to take a lot more responsibility. One of the big obstacles to dealing with the problem, though, is that the minute that we talk about this issue, um, you get a lot of defensiveness from too many white Americans who feel like you're saying either that I'm personally a racist or you're saying that uh, I have advantages that were, you know, I didn't have to work for or something like that, and the conversation tends to break down. I think we've just got to be- come to accept that in a country as diverse as this, uh, we're all going to have some blind spots and we're all going to have some sore spots. But when the the numbers start to pile up for for one uh, community, uh, we should all take that seriously and look at it and be willing to examine ourselves. Hey, maybe I need to know more about the lesbian community. Maybe I don't know as much about the transgender community. Or maybe I don't know as much about Latinos or black folks or what poor people in Appalachia are going through. And if they're screaming and hollering, maybe I should listen rather than assuming that I already know the answer.
2: Well, this is, uh, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. We respond emotionally. And I'm a scientist by training, a sociobiologist. And, you know, and I've come to realize over the years, I like to look at the data. Just look at the data. The data will tell you the truth not the interpretation of the data not what somebody says you ought to read into the data but just look at the statistics if 55% of the gun violence is in the black community and they only represent 13% of the population there is a problem there right if there's a, if there, if a, out of 2.3 million incarcerations in the United States 1 million Over half, uh, uh, actually one out of three, I think, black Americans uh, will at some point be incarcerated. But one million out of 2.3, way disproportionate to population. So let's just look at the statistics. Forget about how we feel. Let's forget about our emotions about this.
3: Well, part of the thing is, though, that people will hear that and they won't say anything, but behind their eyes, they're thinking that's because black people are more likely to be criminals. It doesn't matter the number of people, it's the number of criminals, and they'll say to themselves, but, and so black people commit more crime. But here's the reality. Take, let's just take something into everybody. I'm an thinks.
2: evolutionary biologist. I can tell you there's no, there's no black gene for crime.
3: Well, well exactly. <laughs> and so, so, so how, how, it's how not genetic. Actually, so yes, yeah, so how does this actually work out? Um, so, for instance, you take something like a drug crime, dr- you know, drug offenses. We all uh, acknowledge that uh, using you know, marijuana, for instance, is illegal in the United States. Well, African Americans and Latin, I mean, African Americans and whites, it turns out, use um, drugs at exactly the same rate, literally exactly. So it's about 12 percent. Yes. Um, so, um, and yet, African Americans are 50 percent more likely to go to prison. Oh no, no, I'm sorry, not 50 percent, 100 percent. No, no, I'm sorry three times, no, no, I'm sorry, six times more likely to wind up in prison for doing exactly the same thing. So now you're not talking about, hey, these people are doing more drugs, of course they go to jail more. You're saying one group standing on this side of the street is doing exactly the same number of drugs and the same amount. The other group across the street is doing exactly the same amount. And yet that group on this side of the street, overly policed, overly arrested, overly incarcerated, overly sentenced, so that you have six times the rate now that means at every level of the system from what the what the police officer decides to do to the prosecutor to the judge to the jury all the way down the line there is some bias that says black people accused of ju- doing drugs are guilty and should be punished white people accused of dr- of using drugs maybe they're experimenting with drugs maybe they're addicted that there's some other double standard operating And that's what the numbers show. It's not a difference of behavior, but here's where I've got a problem. This is
2: where I've got a problem as a scientist. It's going to causation. Causation's tricky stuff, right? And we can say, well, that necessarily means that there's a bias all throughout the system. But we could just as easily make the argument that uh, that the demographics of these white uh, drug users tend to be a higher income demographic and they can afford better defense. It could just well, get down to that one thing. It doesn't necessarily it, it doesn't it, necessarily mean bias throughout the whole system. It could just simply mean the, great about the, the economic d- disparity.
3: And everyone rushes to that because we would so much rather say that we just treat poor people badly and therefore everybody can maybe work harder and be less poor. But we do treat they, poor people but, badly. Well, well we absolutely do, but most people feel more comfortable saying we, put, we treat poor people badly because they imagine if that person works hard, maybe they'll be less poor. You can't work harder and be less black. The problem is that the That's numbers true. actually show that even across socioeconomic lines, the same things hold. And in fact, from really? an employer's point of view, yeah, for an employer they've done these studies now that show an employer, if you, if you have exactly the same resume and they've done these tests, um, an employer would rather hire a white guy with a felony conviction than a black guy um, who 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 was nodding that one? Anyway, wow. we'll talk about it later.
2: Well, yeah, wow, wow. I I wasn't aware of that, and thank you for making that point. We have to take sure. another short break, but stay where you are. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report.
4: This is Larry from Bullseye Archery, a new shop in Scotts Valley. We carry compound bows, traditional bows, rests, anything you need for archery, and then some. If you're new to the sport, we offer lessons and carry all the products you will need for archery. We're located in Scotts Valley, 5299 9 Scotts Valley Drive. We are open Tuesday through Friday, 1 to 7, Saturday, 11 to 6. Bullseye Archery, the little shop with everything you could want in archery. Try us out. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. If you watch any TV these days, it's nearly impossible to avoid the ubiquitous commercials for prescription medicine. One of the most important questions we need to ask ourselves when we're watching is what are the promoters of these pieces trying to accomplish? Whose health are they trying to improve, ours or their bottom lines? Recently, I saw one of these ads that I found particularly problematic. It was for a testosterone product that is supposed to treat something called low T or low testosterone, where the manly hero explains the condition has nothing to do with us. It's just a number. And all you have to do to address this distressing dilemma is get a prescription and raise the number. The problem is low T is not just about a number. It's about our bodies and it's a sign that something is wrong and it has everything to do with us. What's worse, all drugs has side effects. According to Morgan & Morgan, a law firm that is seeking victims for potential compensation for adverse reactions, these unpleasant toxicity symptoms include strokes, heart attacks, blood clots, and pulmonary embolisms. By making better choices, we can take care of our hormones on our own. Some proven testosterone-boosting techniques include lifting weights, eating high-protein foods, breathing deeply, supplementing daily, and getting enough sunshine and sleep. As always, when it comes to our health... Our best bet is to take care of ourselves and always take commercials for pharmaceuticals with a grain or two of salt. Pharmacist Ben here, urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine. It's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com.
1: You can save a lot of money when you buy a home with the right kind of mortgage. To learn about all the mortgages available like renovation, first-time buyer, and jumbos, and which mortgage might save you lots of money, tune in to Ken Michaels and the Mortgage Makeover Show Sunday morning at 8 o'clock on KSCO. Ken will clear the mortgage airwaves and leave you in the know about how to save money. Mortgage Makeover is brought to you by American Mortgage and Equity. Tune in Mortgage Makeover Sunday morning at 8 or call American Mortgage at 844-WE-LEND-4-U or go to Mm CaliforniaLowRates.com.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa. And if you're just joining us, my guest today is environment and social justice advocate Van Jones. And before we went to break, you were making the point that even among the exact same demographic, uh, economic demographic, the arrest and conviction rate of drug users is six times higher uh, among black offenders than white offenders. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish your point before we went to break
3: well i it, I just think it's something that it's so uncomfortable uh your mind just rebels against it because what we you know we all love dr king we we all hate the idea of the the, the birth defect of America being the enslavement of people based on color of skin, the theft of native American lands based on you know skin and culture and yes. so we we, we 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 want to be past this we want to be done with it. We have a black president for crying out loud, why do we still have to have? these conversations. And nobody's more sick of these conversations than black people, I'll tell you that. (laughs) But at the same time, uh, you can't fix a problem if you don't look at it, in it's true dimensions. And the numbers right now are pretty clear. And part of, I think, what we've got to be able to do as a country is to have more empathy. I don't even like to talk anymore about race and racism. I think it's a question of, in a diverse society, how do we have more empathy for people who, frankly. I'll never meet. I don't live in Appalachia. I'm not a, a lesbian in Seattle. We we have a, uh, I, I don't, I'm not a gun owner um, in Mississippi. We've got to learn how to have empathy for each other and recognize we all have blind spots and we all have sore spots. And so if and when a community starts marching in the streets and saying something is wrong here, rather than assuming, oh, those people, they're just, you know, want special privileges. Those people are just lazy. They're just complaining. Just consider that maybe uh, you might be marching in the streets if something similar was going on in your community, and you might want someone to listen.
2: Well, what you're talking about, it sounds like, is we need social maturity before we mm-hmm. can have social justice.
3: Well, I, I haven't heard that term before, but it, it sounds it sounds good to me. I, I think really so.
2: Does. I think unless we have social maturity, we can't move on to social justice, and that requires, you know, when you think about adolescence maturing it really requires honing those empathy skills, doesn't it?
3: I, I think it does. And that does not take away, by the way, from personal responsibility. Often we get into this situation where you say, well, African-Americans need to take more personal responsibility and then their lives will be better. And I think that is very true. I think all of us need to be more responsible. And I, and I would say that some of the social pathologies that are, are building up in the black community where uh, you do have, uh, I think, too much uh, irresponsibility. Uh, I have no problem calling that out. I'm, I've spent a lot of time in the black community. I tell a lot of young folks all the time, "You've got to uh, take uh, take your destiny in your own hands and not make excuses." At the same time, my father, who was born in poverty and, and joined the military to get out of it, and then he put himself through college, and then he put his little brother through college, he put a cousin through college, he put me through college, he put my sister through college. You know, my dad climbed that ladder, and he said, "You know what? You have to climb the ladder yourself." That's your individual responsibility, but there also has to be a ladder to climb, and that's, that's right. the responsibility of grown folks to make sure that every kid has a ladder to climb. And we're definitely not living up to that for too many parts of black communities, Native American communities, Appalachia, uh, Latino communities, the barrios and ghettos. We have we are have taken our eye away for almost a generation. When you look back now, those uh, programs, those scholarship programs, those after-school programs, those uh, community rec centers. There, many of them are closed down. They're not, they're not there. And so even people who came out of poverty or their parents did, the rungs that you, you or your parents climbed out of poverty on, some of those rungs are missing. That is not those kids' fault. Um, it's our responsibility to make sure that if we want to have the greatest country in the world, we don't throw away genius into juvenile halls, detention centers, and prisons that we should be throwing into into community colleges and four-year universities.
2: Well, well said. Now, speaking about the ladder uh, and job creation... Uh, I want to switch gears for just a moment. I mentioned in the opening at one time you were a special advisor to the president regarding green jobs. So what's the latest progress on creating green jobs in America? And why is it feeling like that sort of came and went? We don't have any candidates talking about green jobs. It's almost like they don't even want to use the words.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, look, um, first of all, there are more green jobs than ever. Uh, The solar industry is growing by by leaps and bounds. It's growing about 10 times faster than the rest of the uh, economy. I think there are about 170, 180,000 workers in the solar industry right now today. There's about 80,000 coal miners. Just to give you a sense, there's about 150,000 people in the wind industry right now, um, compared to, again, just only 80,000 coal miners. So we talk a lot about our sisters and brothers who are are, uh, risking their lives every day in the coal mines, and we appreciate them. They keep the lights turned on. But from a job-creating point of view, uh, the, the uh, clean energy is just kicking the, the butt of um, every other part of the economy, uh, dirty energy and anything else. We don't talk about it anymore, though, because uh, when this was first proposed, there was a massive freakout on the part of people like the Koch brothers and others. Uh, the Heritage Foundation put on the front of their website that they wanted to, quote-unquote, kill the myth of green jobs and they turned it into this idea of well it's some kind of uh, fairy tale uh, government boondoggle and um, and so politicians you know tend to be sensitive to that stuff they ran away from the concept. There was definitely
2: but, a, an aggressive campaign against anything associated with green job programs.
3: Yes and um, but the reality is that while that was going on, um, people talk, stop talking about it politically. The economics continue to make more and more sense. The price of solar panels have come way, way down. Uh, The the need for alternatives has gone way, way up. And so even though it's not talked about politically, it's moving forward like a freight train economically. And now Congress uh, just extended uh, by five years the solar tax credit, which means you're really going to see a takeoff. And so sometimes an idea comes out, it draws a lot of fire because it's new and the antibodies of the establishment react. Um, But then once the inflammation dies down, it turns out the idea is pretty daggum good. Nobody goes back and apologizes for the freak out. But a lot of people now are making money uh, both as workers, um, saving money as homeowners and business owners. And you're going to see more and more solar over the next 10 years. And you're going to have a lot of people with green jobs, even though we're not talking about it uh, on the radio as much.
2: Well, I'll tell you, there's a real irony here because I work in Silicon Valley And, uh, you know, we all know that Solyndra was uh, hoisted up as the poster child for uh, the the failure of the green jobs uh, movement, as though the investment in Cylindra uh, was a bad investment. It wasn't a bad investment. It was an investment that went bad, but uh, nobody seemed to want to make that distinction. And I think it's an irony that you know that the that we we did need to invest in solar energy, and we're now sure. coming out on the other end of that.
3: Well, what's what's funny, and I'll I'll say say this quickly for people who who, are, who remember the whole Cylindra thing. That loan program was a George W. Bush loan program uh, that was a part of the 2007 energy package. President Obama took it um, and put money into it. Um, uh, Bain Capital, which Mitt Romney ran, is considered one of the best firms in the world. They have about an 80% success rate, which is unbelievable. 80% success. That fund that George W. Bush created and President Obama ran, yes, it had Solyndra in it, that failed, but it had a 96% success rate. For the rest of their investments, and returned eighty billion dollars worth of money to the U.S. Treasury. One of the greatest success stories in the history of American R and D was that fund. And yet, <laughs> the enemies of green jobs and the enemies of the president took one failure and said the whole thing is garbage, and uh, people people fell for it. But sometimes it wasn't just the
2: but it wasn't just the enemies. Let's you and I are being honest here. Let's go all the way. The media, too, jumped on the bandwagon. They oh, misreported sure. the the, uh, the loan. They, they misdescribed the loan package. And uh, and they attributed the failure of Solyndra to mismanagement, when in fact what it was was Taiwan and China had slashed the prices of their solar panels, where there was just no way Solyndra could compete economically.
3: And, that and happens that is- all
2: the time.
3: It it happens all the time, and the United States' uh, commitment to R&D is is why we lead the world in so many technologies, including all the stuff in Silicon Valley. Let's not get away from from that R&D. That's what's made us so great.
2: That's absolutely right. Uh, Innovation has made this country great, and with innovation comes failure. I hope that doesn't come to news to any listeners. Uh, We have to take our final break. We'll be right back after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to The Costa Report.
8: Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. That's www.ibm.com slash big data.
7: Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially-made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination.
2: Oh no, not now! What's wrong, Andy? Apart from my computer already running slow, it keeps crashing on me, especially
7: now when I have an assignment due in a few days. Ugh, it's so frustrating.
1: Sounds like you need user-friendly computing to look into it. Who? User-friendly computing. They're locally owned and provide high-quality computer service to repair most PC, Macintosh, and laptop computer issues within 24 hours. Really? You bet. User-friendly computing can tackle any computer issues with viruses, spyware, network services, Services for wireless devices and system upgrades. User-Friendly Computing even provides on-site service throughout all of Santa Cruz and Monterey County.
7: Wow, User-Friendly Computing can fix my computer before class. How do I get there?
1: User-Friendly Computing, located at 505 River Street in Santa Cruz, across from the Gateway Plaza, open weekdays, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., or userfriendlycomputing.com.
7: Well, SF Gate reports a young woman turned the evening commute into a thrill for commuters stripping down to her underwear while strolling down the middle lanes of the Bay Bridge. Woohoo! Yeah. The officers soon caught up with her and began flashing lights, but she just kept on going, continued stripping.
1: What was she flashing?
7: <laughs> well, almost all of it. <laughs> now blood pressures and traffic flow returned to normal soon after her arrest. Now that that is what I call entertainment for the commuters out there. So don't you women in Santa Cruz get any ideas. But yeah. about that girl stripping out on that uh, bridge?
1: Hey, I'm all for <laughs> it. The more the merrier.
7: Those commuters deserve a little bit of entertainment, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. If yeah. you're going
1: to be stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic, <laughs> why not have somebody flash a pair of tatas in your face? Tune in. KSCO presents Georgia every Wednesday and Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. on KSCO AM 1080.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Van Jones. So moving on to the 2016 presidential campaign, I believe you may have been the first to call Donald Trump the social media president. Uh, You make the point that uh, from a historical perspective, every candidate that became president mastered the media tools of their time. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: uh absolutely i uh, I can you know part of the thing that's so amazing is how off guard all of us in the political establishment um, have been taken by the John, Donald Trump phenomenon. So many of us myself included "Oh, well, this will be a flash in the pan. This will be over in a week and a month. he's one more gaffe away, and yet the, <laughs> the, he just kept rising and rising. he's still rising. and so um I looked into it and I, what I realized was um, uh, if you look at fDr. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was considered a lightweight uh, kind of a no- nobody of a guy yeah, he had been governor of New York, but he was considered a real lightweight, but he understood radio and he mastered radio and he became president and a great president. JFK was considered too young, too Catholic too lightweight to deal with the former vice President Richard Nixon, but he mastered television right as television was becoming a dominant force and he you know, became this great force same with Reagan in television. Then Obama comes along, too young, too lightweight, too weird, two ears too big, name name too funny. But he understood the Internet, and he was able to do the online fundraising and just completely tie in knots the Hillary Clinton campaign and ultimately become president. I think where we are now is we're at another moment. You You had radio, you had television, you had the Internet. Now you've got social media and reality television. On reality television, being a braggart, a blowhard, you know, it does not get you lower ratings, it gets you bit better ratings. On Twitter, insulting people does not get you fewer followers, it gets you more followers. So he's obeying the rules of the new media system that he is in, which is very much influenced by reality TV and Twitter. And the other candidates are still thinking that we're operating under the old rules, and they are just being flabbergasted by this guy, and so are all of us. But I think that we are going to continue to underestimate him until we realize that it's not that he's breaking the rules, it's that he's following the rules and that the rules have changed.
2: That is a very good point, but it is pretty frightening to think that all a president has to do is master the 144-character limit that Twitter puts on you. On it's the other 140, hand, I, I think. 140, yeah. I, I think You know what I think about? I think you're right. I think that is the perfect medium for Mr. Trump. Yes. 140 yes. characters. <clears throat> it, it just plays into the way that he describes his positions. Um, I mean, there's no really uh, detailed depth. And when he gets uh, questioned about that, um, people tend to think that he's not giving details because why would a good negotiator give uh, details? You probably heard that defense.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: Well,
2: uh, I'm not think, even sure the details are there. That's what's got me worried.
3: Well, I think if they were there, we'd be frightened of them because some of the things he says are completely unconstitutional. I mean, to to for the first time introduce. Uh, religious discrimination uh, blatantly against a billion people because of these horrible uh, nut jobs that are uh, a tiny fraction of a fraction of a minority. So I uh, say all Muslims should be kept out of the country. And then he says, well, temporarily. Okay, well, why don't we just temporarily uh, round up all the white guys because some white guys shot up Planned Parenthood? I mean, I don't think that makes any sense. But we
2: did oh. round up all the Japanese under, you know, under the threat of security.
3: And it was one of the the great black eyes in the history well, of the of country. Well, of course and, it is, we, but the fact we is apologize. we
2: use fear and the threat of national security to do all kinds of really horrible things that dance on the edge of the Constitution.
3: You know what I thought was remarkable was right before Bill Clinton came out to give his first speech of the campaign, I guess on Monday, uh, you had Donald Trump and a lot of uh, the opponents of the Clintons jumping up and talking about Bill Clinton's uh, sexual history, and I said, "Well, geez, these people must be very afraid of Bill Clinton to, to you know dig back through that 10, 20, 30 twenty, thirty-year-old garbage can." And sure enough, Bill Clinton came out understated, but he gave one of the best speeches I've heard in a long time. And one of the the high points of that speech this week, and I hope people go on the internet and find it, he talked about a Muslim American, and he talked about him working in a little store in New York, and two robbers coming in with guns to steal the money and that Muslim American said I can't give you this money because it's not mine the owner of the store it belongs to him and this Muslim American reached out and slapped the gun that was pointed at his head and the gun went off and the bullet barely missed him by maybe an inch and uh, the the robbers were so shocked by this Muslim's courage they ran out and the guy uh, got the day off because he obviously had done something pretty heroic and he got out his prayer rug and he prayed and said well now maybe maybe my wife and my children who are still over in Yemen, have been there for 10 years, might be allowed to come to the United States and be, be with me. Now, Bill Clinton said that man represents the Muslims of America much more than those horrible idiots in, in, in San Bernardino. And, and it brought a tear to my eye because how many dentists and doctors and store owners and, and neighbors and, and good people and professors are here who happen to pray slightly differently than I do, who must every day feel... That they are less and less welcome in a country that they give so much to, and I think that kind of leadership from Bill Clinton. I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm more on Bernie Sanders' side of the, the Democratic Party, but to hear a a president speak in that way, and to remember that George W. Bush himself, six days after 9/11, went to a mosque and he put his arms around Muslims and said, "We're not against Islam. We're just against terrorism." That kind and quality of leadership should not be given away. To the people like Donald Trump, who, whatever you think about his economic successes or failures, has not brought out the best in our country in the way that both George W. Bush, at least in that aspect, and Bill Clinton have done.
2: But on the other hand, you have to look for and start with the common denominator, don't you? I mean, you have to look for common denominators. Just like we I mean, were talking about, a common denominator in the judicial system is uh, there are disproportionate numbers of blacks being incarcerated, being arrested. In that same way, there are disproportionate number of Muslims who are terrorists.
3: Well, is that true? I, I, well, I don't. I,
2: well, it is true. I mean, it, you know, I'm, and, and so but, the problem, but, the problem is we've got to be able to Use more technology and use more tools to have a a better filtering system. I think we well, we've got to be able well, to separate just, the bad guys out, and we don't know how to do that.
3: Well, but let, but let me just say though, and this is something that I I, I have looked at you know very closely. Mm-hmm. The majority of people who've been killed by terrorists, by terrorists, if You talk, I don't mean Muslims. I mean, terrorists. you mean in
2: U.S. in the U.S. Inside,
3: yes, inside the United States, the the majority of people who have been killed. By somebody using violence for political purposes have been killed by white
2: domestic male. terrorists yes
3: yeah domestic you know the timothy yes. mcveigh's these people no frankly these, you know, these militia these these groups are terrorist organizations the Ku klux klan these are terrorist organizations operating inside the united states but nobody would ever say we've got to look at these white men because these white men are disproportionately oh terrorists. i think Even we do what, i think, think the we, numbers. Oh, well but, i
2: think we do i think we need to look at these guys and we need to be vetting them out too
5: well, I—I I, I mean, I'm—I'm
2: yeah. a—I'm an equal opportunity vetter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
3: I guess I guess what, what what breaks my heart is when somebody says that Muslims are disproportionately terrorists, and and, and what I know is that there's more than a billion Muslims. Uh, you know, Indonesia, one of our great partners and allies, is a Muslim country. They've had a female <laughs> prime minister before we've had right. a female president. And you make so, a good
2: point. I mean, you know, there—if you count domestic white terrorists. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a disproportionate number of uh, violent actors in the United States that are Christian. You, you yeah, can, you can make and, that and, case, yes, and as, and as
3: a Christian, as a Christian, when that when that man went and shot up Planned Parenthood and killed those people, and he did it in large part because you know of, of sharing my faith, nobody came to me and said, "Van Jones, why don't you stand up and denounce these Christian terrorists?"
2: Yeah, and that but we're not going to let time, any more Christians in the country. I your exactly.
3: Point. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so I just think. You know, fair is fair and foul is foul. I am a hundred percent opposed to to, the, to these jihadists, uh, to these people. But I won't even call them Muslims because I don't want to associate these nut jobs as death cult <laughs> with one of our great faiths. Um, I, I and, understand, and, and I and I appreciate the president refusing to call, to honor them by calling them Muslims or honor them by calling saying that they practice Islam. He calls them extremists. I call them a death cult and nut jobs because, uh, you know, I wouldn't want somebody. Uh, to refer to those Planned Parenthood uh, murderers as a Christian uh, kind of a movement. Well, you know know, I I could
2: talk to you forever, but we are all out of time. So before I let you go, let me just take a moment to thank you for your service to our country and also for making time to speak with us today. Thank you, Mr. Jones.
3: I really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: My guest next week is lawyer and conservative commentator Ann Coulter, who will be here to tackle the difficult question of how a nation, which was founded on the principle of religious freedom, should respond to what has become a religious war. It's a tough question, and we're going to tackle it next week with Ann Coulter on the only program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to The Costa Report.